Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. My name is Julie Douglas. Julie, how much plastic is, is in your life? Like how much, how many plastic things did you encounter, say, just this morning? Just this morning? I didn't count. But I thought about it and I thought, well, if I were to just try to live a plastic-free existence, I would say that about 75% of everything that I touched that was surrounding me would just disappear. And I'd be left with like a shell of my house (laughs) and like, uh, you know, maybe one glass item. A glass. (laughs) (laughs) You? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was was looking around myself and it's pretty startling because... um like even like now since I'm using a Kindle, it's like I'm reading on plastic. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, I'm certainly we're doing all this research on and, and writing on plastic for the most part. Occasionally we have an actual book thrown in there, um, or some printouts that came from a machine that was made out of plastic. But there, plastic is just all over my work life, and then my my hobbies. I'm you know if, if I. If I'm painting, at least do these little miniatures that I paint were made out of metal, but now it's cheaper to do them out of uh, high-grade resin, so mm-hmm. they're, they're made out of plastic. Um, the cats, they're pooping into plastic boxes. They're eating out of plastic. I'm eating out of plastic. Um, sometimes and, there are plastic And sometimes glass. Food. I do use glass for the food. Uh, but, but still, you go and you buy plastic and everything, you know, everything's like wrapped in three different uh, cellophane wrappers if right. you're not careful. And... Uh, yeah, it's just everywhere. I mean, even you, your clothing too, right? Yeah, there are certain types of like polyester, um, and we think of polyester as being like a really seventies thing. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that there are types of polyesters that are really lightweight that you wouldn't even know um, are in your clothing that's plastic. Yeah, plastic components in otherwise metal-looking objects. I mean, how much of our I mean, our, our vehicles are filled with plastics? Dude, our earphones. Our earphones. We have on our heads right now. Head, uh, plastic. The earbuds we stick inside of our our bodies are made out of plastic. Surgical implants of various kinds are made out of it. We we, we store everything in it. We we lie down to sleep in it. If you have one of those those cool race car beds, um, we have we have everywhere. remade our world into a plastic one. We protect ourselves with it. Teflon. If you're wearing Teflon, yeah. that's plastic. Also used to store um, like many volatile uh, substances like acids. Um, as well, I mean, it's it's everywhere, and uh, and the, the really amazing part too uh, for me because we, you know we're, we're stuff to blow your mind, so we really you know we want to focus on that that mind blowing aspect of any topic we cover, and certainly plastics may not sound that exciting, but think about it, it's something that you know you go back a couple centuries and uh, and and you, there wasn't plastic everywhere. We were having to depend on other materials, and now plastic completely envelops us, completely surrounds us. And there's no turning back. It's a huge innovation. Uh, there's a lot that is actually democratizing about it. And we'll talk about that later. Uh, but, of course, there are some drawbacks to it. And it's sort of one of those things that uh, once uh, you have this technology and you open Pandora's box, it's not like you're going to yeah. go backwards and say, you know what, let's just start putting milk into those glass jugs again. Yeah, and you can start doing it on a – you can try on a local level. And certainly I'd love to hear from anyone who has given up plastic completely um, because, that, because again, that would be – it's more of an effort than you would think. And you're wearing moccasins right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> Even your shoe wear would be right. affected. So, I mean, it, but certainly on a larger level, on a cultural uh, level, it's just impossible to go back. These substances that we've we've taken, it's like a, like you say, it's like a Pandora's box. It's like it's like a magical genie has given us a gift, and then we decide we might want to take it off, and we realize it's 
fused with our skin. And in some cases, in it some is. cases, it has. So, All right. Um, well, let's talk about the ubiquity of plastic in terms of some statistics. It turns out that we make 115 million metric tons a year, the equivalent of the weight of 347 Empire State buildings, and 10 percent of that makes its way to the sea, and 20 percent of what gets to the sea has been tossed off by ships and oil rigs, and the rest comes from floods and sewage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then, of course, that plastic winds up wrapped around uh, sea animals or, or in their bellies more often than not. So. Yeah, yeah. Or just floating in giant uh, heaps on the surface. Yeah. And walking we, up on the beaches. Yeah. As, and just nothing is more depressing, by the way, than walking down a stretch of beach and looking out at the horizon and, and just taking in the wonder of nature and then stepping on a lighter. Yeah. Or, you know, a six-pack ring. It really is depressing. Um, and then we Americans produce 240 pounds of plastic per person per year. So that's a little statistic for you. And uh, 400 billion plastic bags are discarded worldwide every year. That's another thing to keep in mind. Little plastic bags that you yeah. get to the grocery store. Yeah. But again, if you travel back, uh, you know, a couple of centuries, you're not going to find this uh, situation. You're not going to find plastics everywhere. Um, one of the, uh, the the more fascinating um, little stories of of the the genesis of plastic uh, comes to comes to us from a, uh, an article called "Plastic Fantastic" by uh, Jennifer Kahn for um, Mother Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in this article, she uh, she mentions how in the 1850s. Uh, you had uh, this uh, this major manufacturer of uh, billiards equipment, you mm-hmm. know, pool. You know, you're shooting pool. You're, you have these pool balls, and you have to. Everyone knows what pool is, but uh, but to, to play pool, you have to have the, these these objects, right? Well, in the old days, you had to make the billiard balls out of ivory, okay, and you could only get like eight balls out of a single large Asian elephant tusk. And while these used to, they were elephants. Everywhere they were, they were easier to come by. But by this point, uh, they were hunted to near extinction. Yeah. Um, for their ivory. So, I mean, more importantly, that that is a the, the whole extinction near extinction of the the Asian elephant. There, that's a certainly a uh, the, the more pressing concern. But for the purposes of this story, where are they going to get more billiard balls? Right. They're like, uh, well, that sucks for the elephants, but man's got to play play billiards, and billiards is our business. Ladies got to wear a corset. Right. Another thing that was made out of. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, ivory. So they need a material to replace ivory. So manufacturer Michael Pellin offered a $10,000 reward to anyone who could create an artificial material that mimicked ivory. So it needs to be pliable. It needs to be durable. And uh, and this was the the actual uh, quote. He said, "If any inventive genius would discover a substitute for ivory, possess, possessing those qualities which make it valuable to the billiard player, he would make a handsome fortune for himself and earn our sincerest gratitude." And so, New York chemist John Wesley Hyatt steps up, and uh, and he uh, creates this compound called celluloid. Hi, who? I have it right here. I, I, I want to do right it here. too. Yeah, do, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> and so he brings these celluloid uh, balls uh, to Michael Pellin, presumably uh, collects a reward, and we have billiards to this day, and a few elephants. And this is the first sort of tinkering that we see with materials to try to uh, replicate other sort of items like ivory. And then you have Charles Goodyear, who uses vulcanization to process natural rubber. Now, he discovered this in blimps and began hunting them for their plastic, correct? Blimps? No, no, I have that. I have that wrong. Yeah. The blimps started hunting him. No, I was thinking like the blimps, 
Like the Goodyear blimp is a natural creature that is hunted for sport and for its precious plastics. But, yeah. But yeah. that's not the case. Though. No, it's okay. not. Okay. It's not. But that is one of the reasons why you rarely see them in the air anymore, yeah. right? Because they've been hunted uh, down pretty pretty much. But um, but he did use this vulcanization process for natural rubber, and this actually paved the way for something called thermosetting, which melts materials and allows them to be molded into a solid shape. And you get about six or seven different people who are tinkering with this process. Uh, but it's not until 1907 when Leo Hendrick Bakeland improved phenyl formaldehyde reaction techniques and invented the first fully synthetic resin to become commercially successful and trade, trade named it Bakelite, which you may ring a bell for people. Bakelite. Doesn't mm-hmm. ring a bell for me. Uh, like the, have you seen like the old-timey phones, um, like with a rotary dial? Mm-hmm. That's like a Bakelite product. Oh. Well, see, I think Bakelite, I hear Bakelite, I just think Easy Bake Ovens. Which are also made, made of plastic. Made of plastic, yeah. 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 Uh, but fast forward to 1941, and you begin to see that there are more and more products that are using plastic, particularly when the U.S. military begins to replace some metal parts with plastic ones. And we're talking about anywhere, anything from like bugles to actual combs, because before that, combs were made out of rubber, and before rubber, they were made out of ivory, actually. And people are creating a lot of these by accident too, or just they're they're tinkering with the existing formulas. Nineteen uh, thirties, uh, British researchers uh, um, more or less accidentally in, uh, created uh, polyethylene. Um, so I'm, and, and you see see a lot of that. Like if you look at the list of plastics, there's a long list uh, of uh, of various um, very important plastics. Each one with uh, with certain characteristics that make it ideal for certain purposes. So let's go a little bit into the basics of how it's made. Plastics are made from oil, and oil is a carbon-rich raw material. And plastics are large carbon-containing compounds. Uh, Plastics are polymers, large molecules made of repeating units of smaller molecules, and these smaller molecules are called monomers. And these are chemically bound together. And a polymer is like a chain in which each link is a monomer. So think Mm -hmm. of it that way. Um, all plastic is made of carbon, and man-made plastic uses carbon derived from oil, while biopolymers, which we'll talk about, uh, or bioplastics, use carbon derived from natural materials. Now, one thing to keep in mind about the about the plastics made from uh, petroleum and, and, and uh, fossil fuel components, they, they're not huge consumers of those. Uh, Five percent of the 5%, energy, right? Five percent of the energy, and uh, and if, and originally, like some of the earlier plastics were made uh, from coal tar, which is a waste product from from uh, coking coal for incineration. So, um, so so, and that was another thing to keep in mind about why plastic exploded all over the place. It wasn't uh, it wasn't because someone said, "Hey, here's a really expensive." means of creating something that doesn't work very well, let's replace glass and stuff with it. Mm-hmm. And no, it was super useful in, in, in various uh, uh, areas, but also it was cheap to produce. You could produce it more or less as a byproduct of other um, activities. Yeah, it wasn't uh, basically like captains of industry stepping back from the factories and saying, hey, what's that, what's that steam or that smoke, and can we somehow yeah. harness it into something else? Uh, so as you say, it is a byproduct. Um, types of plastic polystyrene. Which you probably know is styrofoam, uh, polyvinyl chloride (PVC), like mm-hmm. in pipes. Um, you often see that in plumbing, and polyvinyl iodine chloride (saran wrap). Um, you mentioned Kevlar. There's Dacron, which is a coating on pianos and guitars. Polyester. There's a coating on pianos. Yeah. Oh. I know. See, I mean, oh. again, your your again, piano yeah. would vanish. I would have thought that hey, the piano—that's a, a high-grade item. 
made. Well, even the keys. You're not making those from ivory these days. Oh, right, yeah. right. So your piano would vanish, too, if you were trying to uh, get rid of all plastic around you. Um, Teflon polar fleece. Again, that's a type of lightweight polyester. And um, and thermoset or thermosetting plastics like polyurethane. Um, and that is in everything from garden hoses to shoes and truck seats. It's everywhere. All right, so there's just a quick intro into the, our, the plastic palace that we've built for ourselves. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss uh, some of the ramifications of living in that plastic palace. All right, we're back. So, yeah, we've created this enormous plastic world for ourselves. It's great. It's made out of everything from PVC to to Kevlar. It's uh, durable when we need it to be durable. It's resistant to acids when we need it to be resistant to acids. It's bendable when we want it to be to be uh, bendable. I mean, it's 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 really uh, killing it. So what's I the mean, problem? really, it is one of those things that's a material that is truly innovative that you can put your imagination into and make anything out of it. The problem, of course, is that some plastics don't even break down for about wee, a thousand years. Yeah. So obviously, a lot of the junk that we're creating, and I say junk in, the, in terms of like bags and things that we tend to throw away or we think that we're recycling and it's just going to be, it's a one-to-one proposition where this bottle will be recycled again into another bottle is not necessarily the case. Yeah, and also when you're dealing with a thousand-year period for it to break down, uh, then you're then, then it's not just a matter of oh, well, the snack cake was in plastic, and now that plastic's around for a thousand years. It's also like I bought this stool at uh, the furniture store. It's made out of plastic, and I'm getting a lot of use out of it. But then well, if you th- end up throwing it away in ten years, uh, fifty years, if it's thrown away at the end of your life. If it maybe it lasts two generations, it's still potentially winding up as junk somewhere and continuing to just exist. Yeah, and even if you were to recycle it, um, you're essentially remelting, like say, bags and recasting the plastic. And according to uh, the United States EPA, manufacturing new plastic from recycled plastic requires two thirds of the energy used in virgin plastic manufacturing. Um, and the, another problem is that the polymer chains break during the process, resulting in a lesser product. So, again, it's not an apples-to-apples process, and it can only be recycled so many times. Right. Also, I wanted to mention that a 2011 North Carolina State University um, study published in the Journal of Environmental Science and Technology found that a biodegradable plastic called PHBO emits more methane than food waste or newspaper in landfills. And because it degrades much faster, the newspaper will emit that methane in a matter of years rather than decades. So it's also a question of making stuff that that can break down in a way that um, is sustainable for us. Right. Yeah, because you you don't want a situation where you're solving one problem and you're creating another. That, That tends to be the way these things go. Yeah, and then compounding that problem is that the EP estimates that um, two-thirds of landfills do not have methane collection capabilities. So not only are you creating more methane, but you don't have ways to collect it and uh, to make sure it doesn't go into the atmosphere. Hmm. Of course, the the big thing that I'm sure has come to a number of people's mind already is is BPA. Uh, That's a big deal these days. I mean, if you're buying something, uh, a plastic item to put food in or drink out of, you're, you're, you're probably looking to make sure that it's BPA-free. 
Well, and BPA is something uh, that is short for bi- bisphenol A, and it is an estrogenic chemical. And uh, those types of chemicals are chemicals that our bodies mistake for the natural hormones in the estrogen family, leading to concerns that it can have harmful effects, um, adverse fat, effects, excuse me, on fetal and infant brain development, as well as an increased tendency towards obesity. Okay, so this is really sort of... And this of ties into our... our- our fears and, and legitimate concerns about uh, about uh, the obesity epidemic, particularly in the United States, the idea right. that we're, we're eating horrible food, that's making us fat, and we're also eating it out of uh, out of uh, out of these uh, these plastics that uh, are essentially giving our body what it thinks is estrogen, and uh, contributing to that obesity. Right, and and it, this is not a black and white issue at all. In fact, if you think about it, um, the plastics have been in use. Uh, or wide use for about 50 years. So we don't have all the data yet, but mm-hmm. we obviously have been, we've been collecting them or uh, collecting that data. And there's a lot of information that's coming out that, uh, could play into some fear mongering. So we don't want to necessarily do that, but we want to try to hit some points and get a clearer picture if we can. We will not come away from this discussion saying whether or not, um, plastic is harmful for us definitively and to what extent. Um, but we can at least sort of touch on it. There's a 2011 study by Paul Terry and Jengen Chen at the University of Tennessee, and the study is called Most Plastic Products Release Estrogenic Chemicals. And um, Printables blogger and chemist Christine Lopisto actually talked about this in one of her blog posts. She said the study found that over 70% of plastics leached, leached estrogenic chemicals um, in a wide range of plastic products right off the shelf, both with or without package contents. And then she said that when the plastics were stressed by simulations of typical real-world situations like dishwashing or microwaving or exposure to sunlight, that percentage actually increased to 95% of the plastics tested. So in other words, all plastics may leach chemicals that mimic estrogen and uh, to a pretty large extent here. So we're going to throw a little bit more stats and studies at you just so that you guys can kind of get an idea of what's going on here. Um, BPA and rat studies, there are a ton of them um, Mm -hmm. that are pointing to all sorts of um, problematic scenarios. Uh, One of them is a 2010 study of pregnant rats that were dosed with either 1.2 or 2.4 micrograms per kilogram per day of BPA. And uh, the BPA was actually fed to them in the form of sesame oil. And those doses are well under the dose of uh, 50 kgs. The established amount by the EPA is being safe for human consumption or exposure. And they found that the male children of those rats fed the BPA lowers fertility in adulthood and that the effect may persist for at least three generations. So what you're seeing here is... um, in a fact that can carry through to generation to generation. So if you extrapolate that with a human, you could say, oh, okay, so if someone were to be exposed to BPA, uh, that that child's grandchildren, even though they were raised in a, say, pure environment, their genes actually may be a bit distorted or changed because of that exposure to BPA. Okay, so that's the extrapolation. We're taking this, the data from rats and trying to figure out how it affects us. Um that then, and this is really interesting, a 2009 study of rats looking at endocrine disruption found that when pregnant rats were fed BPA mm-hmm. and another group were fed oral con- uh, contraceptives that have 
estrogen in them. Uh, it was actually the contraceptives that caused genital mu- uh, mutation and reduced fertility in female offspring, while the female BPA offspring rats were unaffected. Hmm. Okay, so this is muddying the waters yes. a bit. Um, I don't know what to be afraid of now. Well, right. Um, you know, we're not obviously going to start feeding all, you know, each other oral contraceptives, but they were trying to use a control there. So estrogen, you know, being an oral contraceptive was the control to see, you know, what was going to futz with the system more. Turns out, uh, it was the contraceptives. So then, 2011, Forbes magazine, there's an there article very interesting that says majestically scientific Federal study on BPA has stunning findings. So why is the media ignoring it? Yeah, it's a great article, and the and in the article they quote Justin Teagarden, mm-hmm. um, who's part of that uh, study. And uh, Teagarden says, in a nutshell, we can now say, for the adult human population exposed to even very high dietary levels, blood concentrations of the bioactive form of BPA throughout the day are below our ability to detect them, and orders of magnitude lower than those causing effects in rodents exposed to BPA. So what they had done in a 24-hour period, they had actually taken human volunteers and fed them uh, foods uh, that were, you know, exposed to BPA out of cans, so on and so forth. So it was mm-hmm. very intentional exposure to BPA, and then that was very interesting to say that those those BPA levels just weren't detected, and it was very different from what was happening with the rats. So it's telling us a different story. Uh, oftentimes we will, you know, look to animals to try to give us some sort of sense of. Um, you know, what sort of chemicals or environmental conditions could possibly affect us as well. But the jury is just still out on whether or not or to what extent BPA uh, affects us. Right. That being said, <laughs> there's certainly you start reading all this stuff. And, and I know for my own part, I think, well, I'm just going to steer clear of the BPA stuff when possible just to be on the safe side. Right, sure, which makes sense. And, it, and it's good that they took it out of baby bottles and uh, because certainly that those are developmental times that you wouldn't want any exposure or you'd want less exposure. Um, but where we really see the canary in the coal mine, again, is with the animals, and we see this in a, um, a very concrete way. Yeah, because the canary in the coal mine sometimes has plastic inside the canary. In the belly of the canary. Yeah, yeah according to Mother Jones, uh, in an article called Where Plastic Goes to Kill Each Year, Undegraded plastic chokes to death some 100,000 whales, dolphins, seals, manatees, plus an unknown number of sea turtles and about 2 million birds. Yeah. I mean, and uh, we, we saw some uh, some articles, too, where they, they provide photographic evidence of, of what this looks like, like all mm-hmm. the plastic pieces that were taken from a turtle's stomach or or, or a necropsy of a, uh, of a, I think one of them was uh, an albatross, mm-hmm. uh, ironically enough. Uh, that uh, contains all of this plastic, these plastic pieces that just wind up there, and it's just really disturbing to, to, to think of it. Because I mean, we've all, we've all seen like footage of oh, there's an animal and it got its neck caught in a, um, a six pack ring, you know. But it's even, and that's certainly disturbing in and of itself. But but then to see that it's just winding up inside the animals and, and causing all this uh, this discomfort, it's. Uh, it's really sobering. Uh, was it the albatross, too? They were talking about the, the young, before they reach four months of age, aren't able to regurgitate. So yeah. whatever they take in, cigarette lighters or whatnot, just kind of sits in their belly for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Um, it's really grim. Yeah. Uh, Though it does remind me of the Simpsons episode where um, it's a Lisa episode, so some people may, might have missed it, but uh, 
where Lisa gets uh, Montgomery Burns, uh, the evil millionaire, to uh, to open a recycling plant, and uh, and she thinks she's she's changed him because he hit rock bottom, he lost the plant, and now he's re- into recycling, he's into making the earth better, and then it's revealed that his big plan for the plant and in, in is that he's going to take all of these six pack rings, and he uh, he has them uh, sewn together into a giant net that they then roll out into the ocean and just and catch all of these, uh, like everything from whales to squid, <laughs> and just rolling them in and then turning them into this this grotesque meat paste. So, Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, see. And that's an, that's an older episode, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there, thanks for that uplifting be, bit there. <laughs> um, okay, so obviously there's a trade-off here. Uh, you know, we've got plastic in our environment. It's not going away. Um, there is a certain amount of adaptability that it provides us and convenience in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's used in cars. It makes them lighter and more fuel efficient, which is very important. Um, and it makes our existence less cumbersome and safer. And I'm thinking about that in terms of like something like is as basic as an IV bag. Right. Right. That's no longer glass and it's portable and it's not something you have to worry about in an emergency situation. Um, and it is somewhat democratizing. I mean, if you think about this, these products are made cheaply and they're available to nearly everyone. Think about if it's uh, 1821 okay. and and you're trying to better yourself in society. It takes a lot of money to go and get a comb made out of ivory. Yeah. So you're walking around with bedhead all the time. Um, you know, but, th- um, you know, I make light of that. But seriously, this is something that would would have marked, been an outward mark of the haves and have-nots. Uh, so we just take this for granted that all these different products and materials are available to us, and it is somewhat democratizing. And as we touched on earlier, I mean, in the, in the medical industry, plastic is everywhere and is often involved in in in, uh, in gadgets or te- or uh, procedures that, that would just not be the same without plastic. And we have plastic implants, we have plastic uh, uh, surgical tools, uh, and then when you get into the electronic equipment, certainly plastic is a key uh, component. Yeah. So the next time you're at the doctor's office, look around at all the plastic and try to imagine getting your checkup or procedure done without it. So that actually correlates to, to life expectancy, right? right you're not yeah. going to get a heart transplant if there's not plastic available or these tools to make it exactly. happen. Um, all right. So when we talk about all of these, this, this junk, all of this plastic that we've created and how it has democratized our lives or it's, it's changed us, um, Everything that we discard seems like an abstract notion until you start thinking about something called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Yes, and this is uh, this is an idea that, that certainly captures the imagination because I know when I think of it, I imagine like some Godzilla-sized plastic heap, or just like a, a, an island with its own like plastic monsters living on it out in the ocean that will show. Just actually pretty close to what it's becoming, right? Yeah. yeah. And it, but it's also been kind of a sticking point um, in arguments about uh, arguments that basically come down to to what degree we should care about pollution in the planet. Where people are like, "Oh, the garbage patch is just made up by uh, by hippies." It's uh, and then and then other people, yeah. are, the other side is, "No, it's a, it's a real problem." And the other side is, "Well, let's see some photos of it." And this this kind of back and forth is kind of waged over the past uh, seven or eight years. I feel well. And there's this idea that there's there's it's not just one patch either right. there are several patches um but what we're talking about is the texas size garbage patch in the north pacific gyre which holds an estimated three million metric tons of mostly plastic tra- uh, trash six times the mass of the plankton found there and uh most of this is broken down into microplastics 
that chemically bond with PCBS DDT. Uh, we know this mm. is DEET, right? And endocrine disruptors to make this area a million times more toxic than surrounding areas. So the problem here is that those little plankton-sized flakes that have broken down are then mistakenly consumed by jellyfish and small fish that are, are then consumed by larger fish, which are then consumed by us. And so, yeah, so then we end up with little plastic pieces and, and the, the remnants of plastic inside the entire food chain. Yeah. But, okay, here is the silver lining here. And, okay. and I love this. There's actually been a, a bacteria found, or several, that consume plastic. Okay. This, and this reminds me, too, of some of the, like, talking about oil spills and the idea that, that oh, well, we do have, so you can see some bacteria that is uh, developing the ability to consume uh, petroleum. Uh, and so it stands to reason that uh, that they also will eventually uh, uh, and, and are developing an appetite for plastic as well. Well, and, you know, of course there are some concerns with this, but for the most part this is really incredible news and, you know, there needs to be a lot more uh, data involved with it and, uh, you know, in terms of trying to figure out whether or not this is a good sustainable solution. But I wanted to mention that Yale uh, has an annual rainforest expedition and laboratory where they let students venture into the jungles of Ecuador to search for plants and then culture the microorganisms within the plant tissue. And um, one of the students brought back a fungus that they found loves to munch on polyurethane. Hmm. So and there have been several different, um, as I say, bacteria that have been found to munch on plastic, but I really wanted to talk about this one because it's called uh, Pestilopotopus microspora, and it is the first one that anyone has found that, that, that survives solely on a steady diet of polyurethane. And it gets even better because the fungi can survive not just on plastic alone, but also in anaerobic conditions without any sort of oxygen. Oh, wow. So then you start to think about landfills and how they're basically airless. And this is, is the perfect condition for this sort of fungi. So they could just run wild in a, in a, like a tightly packed down landfill and just eat all the plastic up. Exactly. I mean, this has a ton of promise. But then, of course, there are some people who will say, okay, so now that you have this fungi that, you know, is, it, it breaks down, uh, plastic and eats it, what happens if, you know, this goes What awry? if it gets to the palace? We live in the plastic palace and we're celebrating the emergence of a bacteria, of a plastic eating bacteria. Right. So then you're going to the Michael Crichton route and, and you start to think, oh, okay, well, in the hospital setting, you certainly wouldn't want, you know, the, the new hip that's going into your body to, to have some sort of, um, bacteria or, you know, th- that would break down that hip or anything else, really, and any of the tools that are going to be used on you. Yeah. The figurine I just painted, um, it's bad enough I have to worry about the kitten eating it. I don't want to worry about bacteria <laughs> eating it as well. Yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting uh, proposition. And if you want to read more about it, uh, you can check out the paper. It is called Biodegradation of Polyester Polyurethane by Endophytic Fungi. Wow. To think about polyester, too, being susceptible to this. So many great garments. Half my wardrobe. <laughs> That's right. I would take out all the secondhand stores. Yeah. The big take home out of all of this, again, we've, we've built this, pl- this plastic palace. We've built this plastic lives for ourselves. It's, it's everywhere and we cannot go back. Uh, we can't just decide we're not going to do plastic anymore. It's just not going to happen. But what we can do is we can, of course, manage it. We can 
develop better ways to break down the plastic that we have. We can uh, depend more and more on bioplastics that are made from uh, things uh, like uh, like corn and uh, and other uh, biological agents. So we're not having to depend even a little bit on petroleum, and uh, and and also just become smarter with our use of it, realizing that. Uh, once you create something out of plastic, it's not necessarily something that can then be recycled and, and made whole again. It's it, we need to think of it as an, a real investment, of uh, you know even if it's a small one. So if it's you know something like if it's a, if it's a choice between taking sixteen snack cakes and individually packaging them and then putting them in a larger package, we should we should err on the side of putting them all in a single bag. You know, just all the little things that add up to the whole of just using less plastic, using it in a smarter manner, and using more uh, sustainable plastics. Yeah, so there you go. That's that's a good reminder next time you go to the grocery store or you're sorting out the plastic in your life and wondering if everything's really getting recycled and to what degree uh, we have control over the situation. Yeah, I mean, one for me, I've been trying more and more to avoid individually packaged snack items. You know, because, I mean, it's attractive on one level. You're like, oh, I can buy the bag of snack mix or I can buy the bag of six bags of snack mix that are small. And but they then, fit easily into your lunchbox. Yeah, or I can take just a few seconds and, and – and, or, or, heaven forbid, use a little will control and take the whole bag of snack mix to work with me for the week. But that never works. Oh, well, yeah. But, yeah. but still, I can certainly divide it up. I don't, I don't need the other little pre-made bags uh, already there. But anyway – so, uh, plastics aside, let's, uh, let's call over the robot and, uh, read a little listener mail. All right, this one comes from Jackie. Jackie writes in and says, Greetings. Uh, first, the tried and true cliche, awesome podcast. Just listen to the Kraken episode and have a couple of comments. Personally, this is my favorite, apparently, mythological creature. I suspect <laughs> this comes from a combination of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, awesome film. I, I always, I watched the Disney movie a lot growing up. And, and always enamored by the scenes with the squid, uh, and Pirates of the Caribbean, which uh, also featured yep. a kraken. Um, and uh, she continues, the reason I say apparently is because I have a strange desire for one's beak to turn up as proof of their existence, uh, which, as we discussed in the kraken episode, that's uh, what some archaeologists are up to as well, uh, curious as, into the, as to the existence of a possible um, prehistoric kraken. She continues, uh, anyway, you made a comment early on about how cephalopods were essentially mythical until the 1870s or uh, sometime uh, around then. It reminded me of one of the stories in Kim Newman's book, Hound of the, of the D'Ubervilles, all about professor, professor Moriarty, uh, a great read. Uh, this, uh, my favorite, the Red Planet League, in which uh, the professor seeks to destroy his nemesis, the Astronomer Royale. Or the Astronomer Royal. I'm not sure. Uh, I can't remember his name at the moment. Uh, the, prof- uh, professor plans, uh, the professor's plan involves the use of some rather ugly squid, uh, but more I shan't say. Well, that's my email. Again, great podcast. I'm off to listen to the one on gigantism. I had to skip ahead, uh, I mean, to the Krakens. Cheers, uh, Jackie. So, uh, yeah, so there's some favorite Krakens. That just uh, reminded me of the. Uh, artwork that you sent the other day of oh. the silken furred kraken. Yes, yeah. If you, uh, I put we post ended up posting it on all the social media things. So go back and look at that if you get a chance. It's pretty, uh, pretty wild. It makes it look like a, a pet you want to own. Yeah. I mean, really, you add some fur to it, and it's amazing what can happen. It, it's uh, it's funny because it reminds me of a, a dream that uh, my wife had. She had a dream where she had like a kitten-sized octopus that was furry. 
and um, and then her brother was trying to take it from her or something. But it's just like uh, a brother. Yeah. So uh, so anyway, uh, always great to hear uh, hear from uh, from listeners uh, and especially their with with their own like personal likes and dislikes and their own nostalgia might, might happen to be regar- uh, regarding a particular topic. So so uh, that's great. Thanks for uh, writing us. If you would like to write us, uh, particularly if you have comments about plastics, plastic in your life, have you managed to free yourself from plastic? Do you think it's even possible? How much plastic is in your life? What has plastic done for you? Um, what are you doing to try and uh, curb your plastic usage? Then uh, write into us. Uh, you can find us on uh, Facebook and Tumblr as Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And you can also find us on Twitter where we are Blow the Mind. And you can also drop us a line at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.